Welcome to the Health Lab. I am your host, Joel Bland, Occupational Therapist. Today's episode, episode four, features Dr. Andre Villun. Andre is a neuropsychologist originally from South Africa, but he has been in the greater Vancouver area for many years now. He is the owner and director of Headwise Rehabilitation, and he specializes in assessing and treating individuals with head injuries and neurocognitive challenges. In addition to his work at Headwise, he conducts neuropsychological, psychological, and risk assessments of offenders at pre-sentencing and post-disposition for criminal trials. On top of that, he is a clinical associate with Simon Fraser University, where he supervises doctoral candidates in both the neuropsychology and clinical psychology programs. Dr. Andre and I actually worked relatively closely together about four or five years ago in a concussion rehabilitation program. So very curious to pick his brain about what has changed over the last little while with respect to concussion management, how to approach concussion treatment, and any strategies he might have out there for adults, youth, or just the general population with respect to getting back to regular life, getting back to work, getting back to school, getting back to sport, following a concussion. So so really excited to get down to the bare bones of things with Dr. Andre. So let's get down to business. Andre, thanks so much for joining me in the health lab. Good to be here. Great. Excellent. And you know, I was thinking today, you and I, we used to work relatively closely together in the concussion clinic a few years back. We and, certainly did, yeah. Yeah, and, and I miss that. And you know, you're you're a neuropsychologist and you're an expert in the field of concussion rehab. And I, I know concussion management principles have changed a lot over the last, say, 10, 15 years. Can you speak to that a little bit more about, you know, what was recommended a little while ago compared to what is recommended now? Certainly, yeah. I think there was a time um, not that long ago when concussion wasn't even really well understood or recognized. Um, so, you know, that was almost like the first phase and people really thought this was, uh, you know, you shake it off and you carry on. Um, and then the pendulum swung a little bit um, and there was a time when the advice for people was really, uh, to, to stop all activity, to um, stay away from any kind of stimulation. Uh, we ended up seeing people who'd been in a dark room for days, weeks, months sometimes, um, just trying to uh, avoid any sort of uh, discomfort from you know, bright light or sound or uh, any kind of activity. Um, and uh, more recently, but in the last couple of years, well, maybe last 10 years or so, um, that's changed and you know it's becoming very much recognized and there have been some articles in the recent past that really say this idea of of complete rest after concussion is is, is really to be avoided um, it's it's much more likely to prolong symptoms um, than to be uh, helpful to people um, and in fact the the current recommendations are to return to everyday activity uh, as soon as possible um, in, in a way that is tolerated and, um, you know, essentially um, allowing your body to, to adjust to the symptoms in, in a natural way. Um, the 
you know, the, the, the process, uh, the, the physiological process that underlies that is, is um, the process of habituation is the same thing that makes it possible for us to put our toes in a hot uh, bath of water. And, you know, initially it's painful and you kind of can't bear it. And the next thing you know, you're sitting, relaxing and, uh, you know, your body is completely adapted to the temperature. Um, habituation is a very natural process. And uh, if we allow that to happen, we start allowing ourselves to not be so sensitive to those um, stimulation um, experiences that in those early days after concussion are very intrusive, very painful and very frightening to people. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, what's been happening is people are be more and more being given the, uh, the advice to, to start returning to activity in a, in a slow, graduated uh, way, taking some breaks in between um, so not necessarily sort of overwhelming or flooding themselves with stimulation, but definitely also not avoiding um, and hiding away from the things that are uncomfortable. So push, pushing into the symptoms a little bit, but drawing back as needed as well. I think pushing is a word that's a bit of a loaded word and we tend to try and avoid that. It's, it's more, you know, dipping your toe, I suppose, uh, using my earlier example, but it, it, it's more about allowing yourself to experience those symptoms in a manageable, um, kind of a graded, graduated sort of a way um, and allowing your body naturally to adjust, adjust to so, those symptoms that are so painful and unpleasant. So progressive exposure. Progressive exposure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This, it sounds like there's a lot of correlation there between how someone might rehabilitate themselves from something like chronic pain or something like that as well. Very much so. Yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, overlap in terms of how, how we would deal with those two conditions. And, and in fact, um, there's more overlap than one might think, because obviously some of the symptoms of concussion relate to pain. There's, there's headache pain, there's, there's musculoskeletal pain. In fact, uh, depending on the mechanism of injury, very often people will have neck injuries that, that uh, you know, go, go hand in hand with the, uh, whatever the mechanism was that resulted in the concussion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and mood moods concerns as well with respect to depression and anxiety. I know those are huge factors. I mean, how much does anxiety play into it? Uh, both mood and anxiety are really um, significant factors. Mood often um, is is a consequence of of that sense of um, having you know lost. Uh, the ability to carry out some of the tasks and activities or not being at work. And so there's, there's this whole kind of loss of social network and activity and uh, feeling um, successful in, in your day-to-day tasks. You know, suddenly there's a great big vacuum um, because people are now, uh, you know, at home and not doing as much as they were doing. So you don't get that natural reinforcement of carrying out a task and feeling the satisfaction with it. Um, so that's one of the reasons mood will be affected. There's some literature as well that um, there is an increased risk for depression um, in those early days after concussion and sometimes you know, further down the track. Um, so mood is definitely one of the things that happens. Um, anxiety is probably a, a bigger issue. Um, and the issue around anxiety, uh, even for people who, who don't have a history of anxiety, who don't necessarily um, have any sort of a proneness to anxiety, uh, when you're dealing with a range of simple uh, of symptoms that are unexpected, um, that are frustrating, baffling sometimes, 
um, it's, it's not unusual for people to become very sort of concerned about that, um, become frightened by the symptoms themselves, or just be um, wanting at all costs to avoid the discomfort that goes with that. And so, um, you know, the anxiety becomes very much a, a natural reaction to a, uh, a set of circumstances for which we may not have been prepared or which we didn't expect uh, this particular mix of, of, of experiences that are happening. Um, yeah, so, you know, part, part of what, what also happens is um, uh, sleep is often affected as well. And so when people are having difficulty sleeping, uh, that's going to affect mood, um, but it also affects the ability to kind of get proper rest over over the course of, of, of a night. And so you start your day um, sort of, you know, at a deficit. Uh, so, yeah, the, the emotional side of things uh, is 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 you know, in terms of what we talked about managing concussion, that's really one of the big things that uh, need to to have attention um, at an early stage, really, because those are the kinds of things that eventually uh, become, um, you know, more kind of extended um, barriers or difficulties in terms of returning to everyday activities. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like it's a it's kind of a vicious cycle with respect to pain and, and, and lack of sleep and then the emotional difficulties and the pain and the emotional difficulties lead to uh, more severe sleep disturbance and that leads to more pain and, and, and lack of recuperation and recovery and it kind of just snowballs from there. Absolutely. You know, the, the idea of a vicious cycle is exactly the, uh, the metaphor that, that explains it really helpfully. Um, one of the one of the other things that um, also is kind of a, a very direct kind of a vicious circle is the way in which anxiety symptoms, for example, may actually contribute to the symptoms of concussion because the anxiety creates uh, tension, emotional tension, but also physical tension in the muscles, uh, which is the natural way the body responds to, um, you know, a sense of danger or a sense of um, uh, being threatened by something in the environment. So, you know, the, um, uh, we, in, in more sort of extreme circumstances, but even in, in, in sort of everyday circumstances, we, we go into uh, what has been described as a fight or flight kind of a reaction, right? It's, it's the way the body very naturally uh, protects us against danger. And so when there's a sense of danger um, uh, that we become aware of, you know, in, 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 in kind of the physical world, if you're, you know, walking down a, a dark alley uh, in the middle of the night uh, and you hear footsteps moving fast behind you, uh, something is going on and you need to help yourself with that situation. And so you have, you know, possibly, you know, two, two ways that you can help yourself. You can either get away from that situation or you can try and defend yourself. So, you know, this has become known as the fight or flight uh, right. reaction. And that is, is an entirely automatic reaction. There's uh, a part of the brain called the amygdala. Uh, amygdala is uh, from the Latin for an almond. It's a tiny little almond shaped um, part um, uh, sort of uh, in the middle of the brain that is in a sense like it acts like um, if we think about a, um, a passive infrared detector as part of an alarm system that just basically scans the environment uh, all the time and if there's any sign of an intrusion then the alarm goes off so the amygdala does much the same thing it's kind of an alarm that uses the senses of, of the body, uh, hearing, vision, all the kind of ways in which we are in touch with our environment and continuously scans the environment for any sign of danger. And as soon as there is something that uh, triggers that um, uh, sense of danger, 
this starts the the fight or flight kind of a, a reaction and so there's a whole cascade of things that happen automatically your heart starts beating faster so that blood can be circulated to get oxygen and fuel to the muscles the muscles become tense and tight so that they can move quickly to either fight back defend oneself or to run away from the situation and of course if there is an external danger, if there is somebody kind of running at you in a, in a dark alley and you run away from it successfully, you can then relax and you can catch your breath and the danger is gone. Right. Um, when the danger is coming or the uh, alarm system is being triggered by things that are happening inside your body, um, pain, not sleeping well, um, struggling with uh, cognitive functioning, that's kind of part of your everyday life or worrying about what this means for your ability to go back to your job um those kinds of things you can't run away from and you can't fight them um mm. so your body is stuck with that tension uh, that then you know essentially just um aggravates or prolongs um the uh, the discomfort that comes from the tension and of course is going to increase any other symptoms that might be affected like headaches for example so if you have muscular tension um, from stress that's going to tighten the muscles including the muscles in your neck and in your face and may very well aggravate uh, any headache symptoms that you're dealing with so again vicious cycle is, is very much um you know the, the pattern of, of um, how symptoms might uh, end up developing you know to to a much more distressing extent than than might otherwise be the case mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's that sounds like it's when that fight or flight response becomes dysfunctional when there's really no real imminent external threat when it's all very much so internalized absolutely it's a, it's a very natural reaction that you know we would all have happened to us and would be entirely sort of automatic but when it's not kind of the, the right solution to the problem that we're facing, it actually becomes its own problem. Mm. So are, are there any ways to mitigate that or, or address that or kind of subdue that fight or flight response when it's internalized? Absolutely. I think that's um, in terms of managing symptoms of concussion. When we treat um, uh, people who are struggling with uh, kind of concussion related symptoms and are having this sort of um, stress reaction that seems to be aggravating or increasing or prolonging the symptoms, um, the, the tool to uh, deal with that is in fact to, to teach people how to firstly recognize that what's happening is there is tension and stress building up related to the situation, related to the symptoms, and then to help people understand that there's a way that we can actually reduce that physiological and emotional tension. Um, there's a number of ways of doing that, but basically it, it's in a way leveraging another natural system that the body has. And it's kind of the, um, the counterbalance to the fight or flight reaction. So if we think about, just to get a little technical just for a moment, if we think about how um, the, the fight or flight reaction works, it's part of the autonomic nervous system right the autonomic nervous system is, is, is essentially like the the operating system of of of, of the brain uh, like a computer has an operating system it's the part that does all the 
things that happen automatically that that we don't necessarily have any conscious control over <clears throat> things like keeping our hearts beating knowing that we're hungry and looking for food uh, knowing that it's time to to go to bed or to wake up breathing that kind of thing breathing absolutely yeah. digestion <laughs> all those kind of, you know, the things that you know might, might come in handy important uh, stuff but important stuff exactly so in terms of of um uh, sort of how the autonomic nervous system works it, it has several kind of ver- several branches several ways it works the um the sympathetic um, autonomic nervous system uh, the sns uh, is the part that's responsible for the fight or flight reaction that's the part that um, where things kind of in a sense increases the the emotional temperature uh, uh, as it were um but there's an opposite uh, version of that called the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system and that if we if we think about um, this maybe as being like a thermostat in a house, so the sympathetic autonomic nervous system increases the heat, uh, gets you know puts puts um, pressure under the system, and the parasympathetic decreases the, the tension in the body. So where the um, uh, sympathetic has been called the fight or flight reaction, the parasympathetic is called uh, the rest or digest version so that is mm-hmm. the signal to the body that there's no more danger it's safe to relax it's safe to be um to to, to rest and mm-hmm. to to allow this the um tension to, re- to to reduce so how we kind of mobilize the rest or digest system is through a number of ways um mainly it's it's quite responsive to breathing um, and so uh, a lot of um, uh, relaxation sort of strategies uh, is, is around breathing. And the reason why that works is because breathing actually very directly engages the, the parasympathetic nervous system and kind of reduces that uh, arousal that, that, um, uh, that the fight or flight reaction has caused, that kind of mobilization of all the body's resources. Um, and so various kind of techniques around breathing uh, is, is very helpful in terms of that. So um, people who um, uh, do meditation, for example, uh, often learn breathing techniques, sort of slow, deep breathing, uh, expanding the entire lung and, and, and rib cage, and breathing all the way down to the diaphragm. So what's called belly breathing or just um, deep diaphragmatic breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the diaphragm is being engaged. Um, and so that is a, a very powerful tool in terms of sort of calling off the alarm that the fight or flight system may have um, triggered and let things settle down. Um, they, there's a number of other ways in which people can do that. Um, mindfulness-based um, meditation, for example, has been studied um, quite widely Um uh, it's been used for pain management. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn was a, was a psychologist at um, the uh, University of Massachusetts and pioneered this um, probably about uh, 10, 15 years ago. And it's become very sort of widely accepted. There's a lot of research around that. Um, and um, that is, is another tool that really is helpful in terms of kind of calming down that uh, fight or flight reaction. Um, uh, there's a number of other sort of um, versions of that uh, in terms of um, kind of almost tricking the body into let going, uh, letting go of some of the uh, stresses. So um, another type of, of um, uh, kind of tension reduction basically is by um, 
progressively tightening muscles in the body, um, you know, starting in sort of large muscle groups like maybe uh, your left leg and then your right leg and then the muscles in the core, muscles in your arm, and moving up the body in a progressive kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And by tensing the muscles and then releasing that tension, again, we, in a sense, trick the muscles to let go of the, the, the tension that has been building up uh, as mm -hmm. a result of maybe the fight or flight reaction or maybe just tension that's been retained um, because of ongoing stress over a period of time. So those are some of the techniques in which people can um, get rid of that stress and tension that builds up in, in the body uh, for whatever the reason is. Uh, certainly with concussion, pain symptoms and all those things we've spoken about contribute to, um, to that, that level of stress and tension in the body. Um, this works as well for stress that comes from other sources, um, just day-to-day -day sort of worries. Um, but certainly, you know, in the context of concussion, this is a very powerful tool that really does help people uh, gain some relief um, from some of those symptoms that can be very intrusive and very um, frustrating. And is there a is there a recommended schedule um, um, or or um, frequency that people should be attempting to engage in in these relaxation principles? Like, is it a daily thing? Is it a twice a day thing? What's advised there? What we normally recommend is for people to actually do it at least twice a day um, and sort of bookend their day, basically. So do it in the morning, kind of as they get started with the day, um, to start out with being sort of as relaxed and as as calm and and um, modulated as one can be and then at the end of the day before it's at sort of around bedtime is another good time um, and again what what, uh, what that helps us do is to clear away some of the accumulated stresses of the day but also prepares us to be able to sleep because mm -hmm. if we try and go to sleep with the tension still going both at a physical level but also at an emotional level it makes it harder to fall asleep and often the quality of our sleep is not good um, so Book ending is, is, is one really kind of a easy way to do that because it becomes just part of our daily routine, uh, much like we would just brush our teeth and go to bed. Mm -hmm. We do some breathing and some tension reduction before we go to bed. Um, what, what I often tell my, my clients is, of course, this is not something that you can overdose on. So if you feel at any time during the day that things are building up, there's no reason not to just stop and do a... A, a quick kind of a breathing exercise and just let things settle down again. That's it's it's funny you just mentioned kind of br brushing your teeth and and that routine before bed because I actually had a conversation about mindfulness with Philippe de Klerk a few weeks ago on this podcast and his mindful practices. And what he mentioned was he takes somewhat of a structured approach to it. Like, you know, there's these scheduled times throughout the day, but also finding opportunities to be mindful just in, in, in engaging in activities of daily life, like, you know, brushing your teeth or, or mindful eating, paying attention to your food and, and your chewing and, and your tasting and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. When people go into kind of learning about mindfulness, that, that is very much part of the process, right? It's uh, mindfulness, you know, in, in, in its pure form is really uh, about um, being in tune with the experiences that we're having. So the um, cognitive experiences, what's going on in our, in our mind, recognizing that our brain is often very busy and there's a lot of thoughts that'll come and they'll go. Um, and when those thoughts are distressing, it's distressing to us to have them and we're trying to get rid of them. And the more we fight them, the more they come back. 
Um, and so becoming, adopting an attitude of mindfulness allows us to uh, recognize that these are natural processes. And uh, if we just observe these processes, we kind of watch those thoughts come and go into our minds uh, and realize that we don't have to hold on to them. We can just watch them as they come, watch them as they go. And we can in much the same way, be aware of what's happening in our bodies, um, you know, sensory experiences if we're outside and maybe the sun is kind of warm on our bodies we'll be aware of that if we're walking around the neighborhood and we see some beautiful flowers we can be aware of uh, what is around us the experience of walking the experience of being um, you know our feet on the ground or when we're sitting on something just really being kind of aware uh, in a non-judgmental way in a way of not trying to control but just noticing and being aware and when we can take that attitude of mindfulness to distressing experiences like pain or like anxiety or like um, depression um, and and allow ourselves to to become aware of the experience without feeling an, an, a need or an urge to change that immediately in that moment uh, again we become much more able to kind of exist in the presence of the experience, whether it's a pleasant or an unpleasant experience, uh, without that, that sense of pressure to, to change it uh, mm -hmm. and to, to get rid of it in some kind of a way. And, and for a lot of people, what will end up happening is they feel much more um, uh, at peace with, with, with the situation and it becomes less of a, a sort of an urgency and less of a, a pressure-like uh, experience. Sounds like grounded and, and centered. Grounded and centered, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's, I like what you said about walking. I actually, I took a course on mindfulness about, um, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. It was facilitated by, do you know Dr. Noah Silverberg? Yes, of course. Out of, uh, out of UBC there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what we did, well, part of it was what we did some mindful walking, literally just around the classroom, essentially. It was maybe five mm -hmm. or 10 minutes and we had to walk so slowly, like painfully slowly. And, and just, just like you said, really feeling kind of your heel strike the ground really slowly and then, you know, moving into your forefoot and then your toes and just being aware of, of all of the senses around you. And while I was going through it, I remember thinking at the start of it, boy, this is really, really stupid. Um, but, you know, as I got more into it and engaged in it afterwards, I was like, wait a minute, every single, you know, inkling of stress that I might have had that day or, or about things to come later on that day essentially washed away. And from taking that one little course, um, occasionally I'll just go walking in some of the trails near, near my home and leave my cell phone in the car and, and just, just do that really walk really slowly, feel the roots and, and, and the leaves kind of just crinkling beneath my feet. And it really just helps to, again, wash away, wash away those fears and, and just that overall stress that I might be experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Good strategies. Can you, I, I want to, keep the discussion on, on concussion a little bit. And I, I'm wondering if you can comment on what the difference between what a concussion is and what post-concussion syndrome might be. So concussion is a, an injury that happens where um, there's a number of different definitions, but basically they, what they all have in common is that in some way, um, force is applied to the body and 
forces applied essentially to the brain. And that starts a cascade of, of neurological events um, that ultimately would then be described as, as a concussion. And it has uh, a number of symptoms that, that are associated with that. Um, and concussion is, is essentially um, uh, at the milder end of, of any sort of an uh, injury that, that, that occurs to the brain. And so it's, it's basically referred to then as mild traumatic brain injury. Um, so those two terms are, are synonymous. And it's a type of injury that uh, we expect uh, by far the majority of people to recover from uneventfully. Um, over a period of weeks to perhaps, in, in some cases, months. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the, the expectation is that, that this is a temporary process of which, from which people will recover. Um, but in some cases, those symptoms seem to become chronic for people and they have a much harder time shaking those symptoms. And so when this is carried on for uh, three months or longer is one of the most typical sort of um, definitions. Um, people start talking about post-concussion syndrome. Um, Now, that's not uh, truly a medical uh, diagnosis, but rather a description um, of what what is happening, that this person is is simply not recovering um, as as would be expected um, in in the case of most people. So those persistent symptoms beyond, like you said, a a couple of months or, or something along those timelines. And is there an expected duration of these symptoms? Like, can we say, you know, we expect these things to last six months or, or a year or, or, or two years, or, or is it still kind of all up in the air at this point in time? Um, are you talking now about post-concussion syndrome? Yeah, post-concussion syndrome. Yeah, no, the, the, once, once it's reached that stage, we're really kind of looking at a chronic condition. So it, it's in many ways comparable to chronic pain, uh, where there's often uh, really no easy way of, of, of determining where the pain is coming from or being able to un- um, make a clear prediction of what's going to be happening to that pain over time. For some people, it's eventually resolved, and for some people, they really um, are stuck with that pain for, for a long periods of time. Um, and the same seems to happen with, with this post-concussion um, state uh, in people who have this chronic condition. Um, for, for a lot of people, that also becomes uh, chronic, and we don't really have a, a way of predicting how long that's going to last, or in, indeed, um, you know, what's going to take that away for people. Um, what we what we have seen um, in both in terms of uh, working with clients and what the, the the scientific literature tells us is using the same uh, types of of um, uh, interventions that we spoke about in terms of the, the early stages of concussion, in terms of managing those symptoms, using tools like reducing the tension in our bodies, uh, adopting uh, approaches like mindfulness in which we are more accepting of what is going on in our body and the experience that we're having. Uh, those are things that that over time can also reduce the the, the um, discomfort and and the distress that that comes from that. Um, But it's not uh, something that has a sort of a a specified timeline or a particular kind of an expectation. This is at at this point a chronic process. And so people uh, have to deal with it uh, on a a kind of an ongoing basis and find their ways of um, managing the symptoms or being able to to, um, reduce the, the extent to which these interfere with their ability to do what they need to do in their lives. So really, like you said, looking at strategies and, and approaches to, to manage uh, progressive increases in activity tolerances in spite of ongoing symptoms. 
Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And and you you said about you know it's it's kind of on the milder end of things with respect to you know traumatic brain injury, and it's interesting about mechanism of injury because I have mm-hmm. I have clients who, you know, maybe they'll get hit in the head with a lead pipe and they'll be back riding fifty kilometers a day on their bicycles within a month, and then I have right. clients who you know drop a pen and pick it up and just kind of smack the back of their head on their desk on the way up and they'll be out of work for two years. Is, is the mechanism of injury, is, is that a big indicator of, of how persistent symptoms might last? There, there are many factors that are involved. Um, you know, when we, we talk about the more severe grades of, 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 of traumatic brain injury, mechanism can be quite important. So, um, you know, this, uh, uh, situations where a person may have um, kind of a skull fracture and there's some bleeding in the brain uh, underneath the, the skull fracture. And so that's a more severe grade of, of, of injury. Um, even if, if the, 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 um, uh, that the person kind of had, you know, no other symptoms other than the, 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 um, the bleeding. So um the, the way in which we grade injuries, maybe I should kind of take a step back um, and, and just kind of uh, talk a little bit about what the, the sort of ways uh, are that, that the, these are kind of um, discriminated. So typically we, we would consider a person to have had a um, traumatic brain injury of, of any kind of severity if there is um, an alteration of level of consciousness. So we, we, we talk about what is called acute injury characteristics. Um, and so a mild traumatic brain injury would be um, where there is some disruption of, of, of level of consciousness. The person may not lose consciousness, uh, but they may f- have an altered sense. They might be confused or uh, disoriented for a while. Uh, they may have a period of post-traumatic amnesia, which is a period of time during which people don't um, remember events that had happened, or they may have uh, sort of a, a spotty recollection of what had been happening, what had been happening. And so when that post-traumatic amnesia is less than a day, uh, that is, you know, and typically it's a few minutes or so a few seconds even. Um, but, you know, up to a day, that's in the mild range. Uh, when it's more than a day, uh, the injury would be described as a moderate traumatic brain injury. And so those um, uh, typically have a, a longer recovery course and, and may have a more persistent um, problems because they may be more significant injuries. And then uh, the severe grade of injury is where you know, people would have um, uh, a period of post-traumatic amnesia that is longer than a week um, or extended periods of, of loss of, of, of consciousness, including uh, being in a state of coma, for example. Um, so with mild traumatic brain injury with concussion, um, we, we don't kind of expect um, the mechanism of injury necessarily to have a, a, a bearing on the duration of, of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, the circumstances of the injury um, may very well have a bearing for, for people because sometimes um, the event that happened was so unexpected that the person now feels unsafe um, in in an environment where previously they, they had been safe. So it might it'd be an injury that have occurred at work or maybe a motor vehicle accident. And so um, after that, they may feel unsafe driving or they may not want to be um, sort of near traffic and have difficulties crossing the road. 
Um, so there's, there's that emotional reaction to the, the mechanism of the injury. Um, for some people, the, the, the mechanism may have a, a component of um, sort of unfairness to it. Um, uh, in the literature, there's been mention of, of what is called perceived injustice. So, you know, it feels like the injury was, for example, because of somebody else's error or somebody else's negligence. Mm -hmm. And so the, the emotional reaction to that kind of gets um, sort of woven into the, the, the recovery process as well. Because if, you know, we're feeling continually um, angry or disappointed or um, frustrated by the symptoms that are already frustrating and, and, and problematic, and now there's a sort of an additional layer, that can have a consequence as well in terms of, you know, how people deal with those symptoms and how successful they are at using these, uh, these strategies we've spoken about to, to manage the symptoms because that can really get in the way. Right. And it sounds like that also will play into that stress, anxiety, vicious cycle um, factor. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, is that any different for, and I mean, not, not just that in particular, but let's say concussion management as a whole, is that different at all for children or youth? Because I know there's a lot of, you know, new, say, recognition of concussion in, in youth sport. Are the management guidelines the same for youth as, as they are for adults? In broad terms, the, the same sort of principles hold, um, obviously, because, um, you know, the it's much, much more difficult for, for youth um, to necessarily kind of comply with some of these, these recommendations as far as management is concerned. So um, there has to be a little bit more um, structure uh, in terms of people who are responsible for um, these, these young, young people. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, rules in terms of returning to uh, their sports or their schooling, returning to learn, for example, um, those, those, there, there's some some guidelines around those as well to kind of really help people uh, return safely to to their um, education. But even in that kind of situation, there there have been um, some some real changes over time in terms of what those recommendations are. So, um, again, uh, not in in the too distant past, uh, you know, children or or, or youth would be um, recommended to stay away from school for sometimes extended period of time. Um, uh, sometimes the recommendation was to wait until there are no more symptoms experienced. Um, and so the, the, the kind of uh, complicating factor with that, of course, is that um, over time, people become less uh, connected to school, to their peer group. Uh, they have a much harder time uh, returning to school the longer the time goes by because the um, that sense of confidence and, and comfort uh, becomes less. Um, so the current guidelines are really about um, uh, having even youth start a return to learning, a start to activities, a return to activities fairly soon after the injury, uh, but just doing it in a very kind of a graduated way. So starting at a very manageable uh, level of, of exposure to symptoms and to um, being uh, around um, stimulating circumstances are like being in the classroom or being with their friends. Um, one of the other recommendations that's, that's also been very firm uh, over time is to stay away from um, screens, for example, computer screens and um, 
uh, phones and that sort of thing. And again, uh, you know, the um, uh, emerging sort of um, thinking around that is that that too really should be managed in, in, a, in a graded kind of a way rather than an all or nothing kind of a thing. Because one of the um, costs uh, that, that are incurred uh, if we take uh, all those screens away from, from youth is, of course, that um, uh, for, for most of, of, of them these days, that's a, a significant part of their social interactions. And so mm -hmm. to be completely cut off from that may have unintended consequences emotionally uh, that may you know, exceed the, um, uh, the harm that might come from them. So it's a, it's a, it's a nuanced, um, kind of a challenging sort of a decision-making process. And, and, and I don't think anybody has, has all the answers, um, but you know, doing these kinds of um, uh, sort of return to play, return to school or for adults return to work uh, in, in a kind of a, a, a carefully thought through way and, and again, applying the principles of habituation and, and, and graded return to activity. Uh, generally is, is, is the, the most um, useful approach and certainly is well supported by, uh, by the scientific literature. So similar concepts um, with respect to treating adults as well, overall. That was a, a, certainly a long way of saying that, but yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you got to it. You got to it eventually. <laughs> no, thank you. That was informative. Are there, I, I know a lot of people out there, um, well, there's a lot of talk out there about if you have multiple concussions, multiple head injuries, you know, each one is, is, is worse than the last or, or, you know, it, it exacerbates it and builds up over time um, with, with subsequent injuries. Is there truth to that? It's an, it's again, one of those um, kind of controversial topics. And, and there's a lot of um, uh, concern about what that might be. Um, some of the, the research comes from um, the professional sport um, area, um, particularly um, NFL football, um, and the, the, the National Collegiate Athletes uh, Association, the uh, NCAA in the US, uh, has been involved in some um, long-term research um, on that. Um, Michael McCray um, is a neuropsychologist who, who's worked in this area and there's been quite a bit of research coming from that. And they followed a number of athletes over, over many years. Um, and so what they found was that there does seem to be some correlation uh, between um, repeated injury. Um, uh, typically between one and two, uh, they may not see that much, but often uh, three or more. Uh, there they may be uh, some uh, slower recovery. There may be more difficulties with mood, those kinds of things. Uh, but then there are other people who, who don't seem to have those, those consequences. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think the factors are yet fully understood. Uh, certainly they, they uh, many people who do have multiple concussions and yet don't seem to have that cumulative effect. So it's not a, uh, a kind of a slam dunk kind of a um, consequence. And I think, again, uh, one of the, the, the problems, of course, is that people become very um, concerned and very worried um, when they've had a concussion or maybe two concussions about, oh, what is the implication now for me for my future? Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the field is evolving. Um, there, there, there seems to be some con reason for concern um, that there's the potential for, for um, cumulative uh, consequences because of the, uh, the nature of the, the neurological um, events that occur as, as part of the concussion. But I don't 
um, uh, get the sense from, from my reading of the literature that at this point, we really are very clear about what exactly um, the process is or what to, how to predict what's going to be happening to somebody in the future. I want to know, I want to talk a little bit more about what you said a few moments ago about perceived injustice. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there's a little bit of literature, at least from, from what I've looked at, that supports um, the evidence for ongoing persistent symptoms if an individual is involved with litigation from a head injury. Have you, have you seen that in your experience at all? Can you comment on that? Again, I think there's kind of a, a multitude of factors that are involved, right? Um, as human beings, we, um, we evaluate our, our situation and we make conscious decisions and we, we, we try and make sense of what, what goes on with us uh, in, in our lives and in our experiences. And when we feel that um, something we're dealing with is, is unfair or inequitable, um, we're going to have an emotional reaction to that. Um, and when that event is something that has caused harm to us um, or has left us with, with um, symptoms or experiences that are problematic or are um, stopping us from doing things that are important to us, uh, our interactions with our family, with friends, being able to work, those kinds of things. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a whole kind of a, um, series of, of events that may happen in, in terms of how, how we um, react to that. So, you know, the, the idea of perceived injustice, um, there's a, a kind of an emotional reaction of, of stress and tension and, and likely anger and, and, and feelings of unfairness that eventually build into uh, more significant emotional difficulties that might turn to depression, it might turn to irritability and anger. Um, but perceiving justice is just one of the, the, the various ways in which emotional or the way we think about things um, can influence things. Um, uh, you know, they, they are ways, we, we all have kind of what you might call sort of cognitive shortcuts in which, uh, how we make sense of the world. Um, and um, those things can be very helpful. Uh, they can make life much easier for us, but they can also become uh, problematic for us. So uh, in, in terms of concussion, there's, for example, um, a way of thinking that's been called the, the good old days um, bias, right? Where when we look back, uh, you know, after we've had a negative event, it feels like things before that event were perfect and wonderful and, and um, there were never any discomfort or unhappiness related to that, so that that good old days bias leads us to look at our situation in, in a different kind of a way. Um, you know, there's, there's the, the um, what is called the nocebo effect. You've probably heard of the, the placebo effect. Um, mm-hmm. that comes from the Latin, which means I shall please. You know, so when you feel that something is going to be beneficial to you, often it is. Um, the nocebo is the opposite. Uh, nocebo is from the Latin for I shall harm. And... Um, you know, if you believe that an event is likely to cause you harm, uh, you're more likely to uh, experience that harm or, or expect it or, you know, um, view any kind of experiences you're having as being as a result of that harmful, uh, perceived harmful event. And mm. so, you know, 
if you have an injury and you expect that this is going to be an injury that's going to have negative consequences for you, it's more likely in that situation that it will. Whereas if you approach it in, in, a, in a different way, often, um, you know, you will likely still have the symptoms, but you may uh, find uh, ways in which you can actually start working on using strategies to make them less of a, of a barrier. So, you know, as, as, as human beings, we are endlessly complicated in terms of how we make sense of our world. And, and those kinds of things can be really helpful for us, or they can really get in the way and, and, and become barriers. And that's often when, you know, when we work with um, people recovering from concussion, those are the kinds of things that, you know, we look for and um, try and help people understand some of these mechanisms and teach them strategies and tools and, and, and ways of uh, making sure that, you know, the way we think about things doesn't become a, a, a barrier or a problem. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's interesting. I, I like what you said there about, uh, well, it just comes down to really being a self-fulfilling prophecy in some circumstances. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I had this, I was just talking a little bit about chronic pain earlier. And I, I had a conversation with a, a physiotherapist who's based out of Toronto. His name's Dr. Barham Jam. And we were ta talking about um, really positivity and, and optimism. Um, and how they play into recovery from chronic pain and similarly how they play into recovery from concussion as well in the sense that yeah, if you feel like, you know, if you focus on your limitations and think about these good old days about, you know, what you used to be able to do and what you can't do now, um, it really plays into that stress, that anxiety, that fear cycle. Whereas if you try to shift that mindset to the best that you can to focus on really what your abilities are are currently and how to gradually progress with respect to those abilities, um, outcomes tend to be a lot more favorable. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, there's a whole kind of a um, field of psychology uh, called positive psychology, which really is about you know maximizing um, those kinds of ways of thinking that, that lead to a more um, optimistic or positive uh, outlook. Interesting. And I, I want to, we're, we're almost out of time here, but I want to just share a tidbit, which just linking to what you said about um, that good old days um, adage. And it's, it's, it's crazy how we, we kind of forget or, or we remember things quite often as being better than they were. And I just have this story. I think I was about eight years old. I was up at, uh, up at a lake in Alberta. My cousins and my uncle had a cabin on a lake. And there was one, I was, I was speaking with my cousins about this a couple of years ago. And they reminded me of this story about how, you know, I was about eight years old on this lake and I, you know, fell in the water and almost drowned. And then I got out of the lake and then I got stung by a bee and had some allergic reaction. Then I ate some peanuts and had another allergic reaction. And it was just an absolutely awful day. And they were telling this story to me and I had completely forgotten about it entirely, almost like I had repressed the memory totally. <laughs> so it's interesting. I guess I, I guess I found a way to kind of short circuit that or overcome that good old days phenomena. Fair enough. Fair enough. Andre, thanks so much. Um, you, you talked a lot about mindfulness and, and stress reduction and stress management. Any, any resources out there, literature or books that you could point people in the right direction um, with respect to those, those things? Certainly. I think uh, uh, the book of John Kabat-Zinn, he's, he's written a few, um, but the, um, the one that's most well known is called Full Catastrophe Living. Um, it's, a, it's a quote uh, that he took from um, Zorba the Greek, uh, where um, 
somebody asked what about you know have you are you married and he said am i married i have a wife and kids and chickens in the yard you know the full catastrophe so just everything <laughs> wrapped up and so that's kind of what what um you know uh, john kabat-zinn kind of talks about in terms of um you know we have to just experience our life as a whole you know with with the, the good the bad and and the ugly um mm -hmm. and um you know just experience things for they are so so the book itself is, is really very readable it tells the story of, of kind of how he pioneered this 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 whole field in, in in dealing with chronic pain um but he also has a number of guided uh, meditations guided uh, tension reduction um, activities that can be purchased as, as recordings um, and um, yeah and then, then there's a number of apps available as well that might be useful for people to to, to get um, headspace is one that's I think a lot of people have found valuable um, it's another one called calm um, mm -hmm. uh, in fact you know if, if anybody has a uh, a Fitbit or you know one of these tracker devices many of them kind of come with with built-in um, uh, sort of meditative attention reduction, stress reduction um, tools. So Excellent. Resources are, are, are you know readily available. Great. So that's John Cabot Zinn, and I'll put the link, um, the link to uh, that book in uh, the the episode synopsis here. And and Andre, if people want to find more information about you, where can they where can they go? Um, my way, my. Um, Website is headwise, um, just as it sounds, uh, .ca. Um, and people can also reach me on LinkedIn. Okay. Just Great. Uh, Google my name. Yeah. Or just use my name on the LinkedIn website. Excellent. Thanks so much, Andre. And thanks again for joining me in the Health Lab. Great strategies and education with respect to concussion management and recovery. So, really, really enjoyed having you here. Great being here. Great. All right. You take care. You too. Okay. There you have it, folks. Andre Villun. It was great to catch up with him again. Uh, great, great information that he was able to to shed light on with respect to concussion recovery and and strategies to deal with concussion, both for adults and for youth returning to sport. And you know, aside from that, I think Andre's probably got the most podcast friendly voice on the planet maybe second only to James Earl Jones and David Attenborough. Join us in two weeks' time. Episode will be featuring Brian Statham. Brian is a CEO of an organization called Life Booster. Life Booster uses sensor technology to map out musculoskeletal risk factors for individuals in, in physical jobs, industrial commercial organizations and i've actually been consulting with with life booster in conjunction with life booster with with an organization in the vancouver area for about a year and a half now and man really really cool stuff so we're going to talk about life booster the technology what its application is for and how it can be useful to prevent and mitigate workplace injuries until then enjoy the sunshine folks stay happy stay healthy <laughs>